This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. You hate the intro music to this podcast. You told me, I, I sent you a sample and you said it sounds like <laughs> Tony Robbins. And you didn't mean that as a compliment. No, no, actually, I I am actually a, a big fan of Tony Robbins and, and I'm not joking there. Um, <laughs> I like how you had to stipulate you're not joking. I just truly don't associate you and your style with Tony Robbins and his style. So th- that was interesting to me, the kind of uplifting, motivational sound wasn't what I was expecting from the Isaac Morehouse podcast. Because that said, I love it. When I turn that on in the morning, my kids are in the car, didn't know it was coming, and they thought I was flipping on a normal podcast that I was listening to of anybody else. They loved it. It was very professional, so, sounded great. So you're saying you you grew up with me and you're like, this dude isn't uplifting and motivational. And- yeah, I would say you're <laughs> as much as you care about humanity, your day-to-day interactions with them usually aren't like personally <laughs> uplifting people and trying to motivate them uh, to conquer the world that day. Right, just, it, it's, it's a bigger picture view. It's just because I vent to you after I go to the DMV or something. All right, so my, my <laughs> guest today is my brother. Uh, you could probably tell by the similarities in her voice. I hear people all the time. Yeah, I just talked with your brother. I thought it was you. Um, he uh, He's a, an entrepreneur. He's my older brother, so I uh, learned a tremendous amount from him, still do. He's the founder and CEO of Ceteris, which is a, an amazing company. You can check him out at ceterisinc.com that does um, essentially cloud-based or, or a place for small businesses to outsource their bookkeeping and kind of back office accounting functions. Um, but I want to talk about a, a wide range of things today, um, including you know, how you got here. So let's start with, as a kid, what were your dreams? What were your goals? Did you have like big ambitions or dreams? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and as I think back, it's it's hard to know exactly when I started having specific ambitions or dreams other than, hey, I'd like to do something I enjoy most of the time and things of that nature. Um, so in my early life, pre you know high school, let's say, I, I don't, I don't really honestly know that I thought a whole lot about my dreams and ambitions, other than when I watched Top Gun, I wanted to be a fighter pilot, <laughs> and when uh, the summer was going, I wanted to be a professional baseball player. Uh, both of those dreams came to kind of grinding halts pretty quickly. So was, that, was, that did, did you like actually have a moment where you realized it wasn't going to happen and you had to give up on it, like a sad moment or did it just gradually kind of fade away? To be honest, I, I still haven't given up on it. <laughs> um, the next open tryout, I'll, I'll be there. So, <laughs> but no, I'd say that kind of just faded away. Yeah, that explains the intensity at the, you know, church league softball. Exactly. Games. I'm always hoping to scouts in the, in the stands. So, so you had like a general idea that you wanted to do something you enjoy, but you didn't have a particular career or like an amount of money like I want to be a millionaire or anything like that not at all I would say even into into the ages where I did kind of have a better sense of what I wanted money's never been something I've looked at as a target um and when I was young for certainly not I just wanted to be comfortable um and you know have nice ish things and and enjoy my time um as I got older you know I, I remember when I first started getting the sense that I wanted to go into business and be a businessman and <clears throat> accounting was kind of the direction I started heading. I was just looking for something that had a solid chance at a normal salary um, that I could I could see that I could associate it with what kind of house that might be and what kind of lifestyle that might be. 
and that sounded pretty good to me. Um, well, it, it's just, I'm going to cut you off for one second because several of the things you've said already are really interesting. Um, first, that you were never really interested in money as a focal point, but compared to most people at age 10, 12, 15, 18, like at least in our circles, you had a lot of money. You were always working and saving. You're always saving your money. And so um, it's interesting that that wasn't a goal of yours because you seem to put a, I don't know, a, a good emphasis on always making money and saving money. And then second, and, and, and this really is the reason I'm asking this question about when you were young, did you have these goals and ambitions? Because today you're one of the most ambitious, I would say aggressive pursuers of bigger and bigger goals that I know. You you have like this insatiable desire to, to build big things and do huge things. And it's just funny that like growing up, I don't remember picking up on that. And I just, I wanted to ask about that. So when you said you went into accounting, that that's not an area that you see a lot of big, <laughs> like entrepreneurial dreamers go get an accounting degree. So I, I don't know, was there a transition period where you became more bold in your ambitions? Yeah, there absolutely was. And I, and I kind of knew you were getting at that and maybe went the long way oh, about- I, I cut you off. Maybe you went know. the long way about, <laughs> about getting to there. Um, I think what I think what it's been is I've always looked at the next challenge ahead and tried to rise to that challenge and when you accomplish it or you succeed in it you look for the next one and I and I think I will always do that I'll always push to the next thing. Now what I wish I had had and I don't know if it's possible for young people to have this and I was just missing it or if it's something you can gain in in you know educational experiences or friends you're hanging out with but was, was to be able to look not just at that next challenge ahead, but to look five down the road or 25 down the road and be preparing yourself and gearing yourself for what you want far into the future, not just for the next step. To get to where I ended up going was I need to succeed at my first college class. And, and I did that. And then it was, okay, now let's succeed in one I kind of like, which is business. And I did that. And then it was, let's succeed in one that has a good opportunity at a good job prospect. And that was accounting. Then I got a good job and then I succeeded there and I said, okay, let me go into something entrepreneurial and I succeeded there and then I started my own thing where I was in full control and success is coming around there. And I, again, I, I don't know that it would have gone any better or differently. Um, I will always push. I think what I've learned is I will never be content and I'll always be pushing for that next thing. Um, and it, when you say you'll never be content, is that in a way that like, like, does that bother you or is, is happiness for you always having a next happiness is, is there. And I'd be content from a happiness standpoint with my family at my side in a poor house on the side of the street. So it's not that I, that I'm not content with my life. It's that in a professional sense, in a driven sense like, like, like for part of what accomplishment you contentment is, is getting to that next step and, and not even getting there, but having the next one in sight. Like I never feel like I'm at the step until I look backwards and say, oh, I made it up a few steps uh, in the past. But I'm always looking at the next one or two now. It's more like a ramp than a ladder. There's not identifiable rungs necessarily. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes you look back and there's been some progress made. Okay. And definitely some backwards times as well where you, you learn from those. Um, do you think, you know, I, I think we've had this conversation before. And I've come to believe this more and more. I, it's not that I have regrets about uh, my past. Like, I don't look back and I don't feel like sad and bummed out. But... I'm starting to realize, like I asked, what took me so long to start to think bigger? It's so much hard. It's so hard for me to push myself to like, mm -hmm. hey, I could I could start a business. Why can't I do this? What would it take? Or I can, you know, launch a podcast. It took me a really long time 
to, to look to think bigger. And part of the reason it happened was at some point in my early to mid 20s, I kind of achieved all that I had really imagined. I didn't I didn't have big dreams. It was like I want a stable income and a decent home for my family. And then sure. once I did that, I was sure. like, well, why didn't I think bigger? So do you look back and say, why didn't I think bigger? Why wasn't I thinking about more than the next class? Why wasn't I thinking about starting a business or, or building an empire back when I was 12 or 20? Sure. So, so yeah, and, and let me go back in the history a little bit. So right around the time I was probably midway through college, I did kind of have the epiphany that I want to do crazy things. I want I don't want to do a normal thing. I want to do something bigger than that. And, and at that point I was truly you chose to get become an accountant to get my CPA. That's <laughs> that's what everyone does when they decide they want to really shake the world up. You go get your CPA and and go to town. No, I, I knew at that point that I wanted to do it and I, and I would do anything I would sacrifice from a financial standpoint and a risk standpoint, pretty much anything um to achieve it. What I didn't know was the vehicle I was going to take to do what I wanted to do. I didn't understand what business it would be or what risk it would be taking. So at that point, because I am a pretty practical person at the same time, I took the steps that anybody would take to, to advance in their career and I got married, had a family to support and whatnot. So I kind of moved down that path, but always at that point, from that point in mid-college, I had my mind on what it was gonna be ultimately. Um, I, I remember several different times where you know, you would read a book or something. I don't know. You read Rich Dad Poor Dad at one point, right? I did. And you, um, you kind of started to not on like a major scale, but uh, invest in. You know, this is before the real estate bubble. You had some houses that you bought, and you were sort of looking at ways to build assets. And it seemed like with with that, uh, with the business you and I launched together, uh, you had a couple other businesses. Um, either on the side while you were working at an accounting firm, or uh, as your sole thing, on and off. You were interested in the idea of financial independence and being an entrepreneur more than you were interested in any particular industry. And that's kind of, that kind of flies in the face of a common bit of advice you hear. Like, look, don't, don't just want to be an entrepreneur. You have to be really passionate about a particular product or business. And because you need to see it come about, that then makes you become an entrepreneur. But don't just like go out and say, I want to be an entrepreneur. I mean, what do you say to that? It seemed like you were trying things because you cared more about owning a business than you did about what the business was. Is that accurate or no? Uh, yes and no. Uh, I do think there's truth to that, that some, some, some people are geared to be an entrepreneur and there may not be a specific passion that, that is only right for them. You look at some great entrepreneurs, Richard Branson or you know, other people who have been very successful with very diverse things, you know, that are based more on a theme or just being an entrepreneur and finding niches that need help and helping the world get those things. At the same time, I'd say more often than not, truly successful entrepreneurs have something they're very passionate about that they bring to the market place and, and that provides that value. Um, in my case, that like I said before, I knew I wanted this and I was willing to start taking risks on it. I spent a lot of money as a kid making 30000 investing in starting businesses that were losing money, taking a stab at things. It was the things closest to me, the thing I could try, the career I had had as a high schooler, I was going to try to start a business doing that. You could always read books about how to invest in real estate. I was going to start doing that. I, I learned from both of those. I had no unique competitive advantage in them. And so that, that kind of led me back to what you're talking about now, which is something you're either truly passionate about or truly gifted in and, and doesn't absolutely drive you nuts. So you can stand to do it, which is where I ultimately ended up, you know, servicing small businesses, which I am truly passionate about working with entrepreneurs. And I'm actually kind of passionate about numbers and nerdy stuff like that. So 
ultimately where I ended up did kind of bring those together, but I don't think it was wrong to try to be an entrepreneur in something that, that maybe I wasn't truly gifted at because I learned a lot of lessons. And I think trying that was probably the best education I could have gotten to teach me lessons about being an entrepreneur. Yeah. And in some ways, even, even trying some of these different businesses that, you know, if you looked at them, uh, very specifically, you'd say, Oh, well, they're all different industries. They have nothing in common. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing about them that would make me think, Oh, this is something Levi should, should be doing. But I actually see a, a bit of a theme there. And again, maybe this is just the benefit of, of hindsight. You know, everybody that writes a book about their successful life comes up with, you know, the, 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 the <laughs> keys to their success, which are often made up after the fact. But I, I do see a bit of a pattern. And that is you have, I wouldn't even just call it like a high tolerance for, okay, what are things that are problems that people need to solve? And whether or not I'm like really excited about that problem, I'm willing to solve it. You actually are really excited about problem solving and whether it's like minutia or big problems you like to but both your personality and your skill sets you like to alleviate people's pain points um I, even just on like a personal relationships way you kind of sure. have that like you were like the peacemaker in the family <laughs> um but i think that that is indicative of like the kind of businesses you've pursued it's okay look i don't care if it's a home health care industry or if it's real estate or if it's accounting these are pain points I can identify. Why not try it? And and through that process, you sort of came to where do I have a unique competitive advantage? Would that be a fair characterization? Absolutely. And yeah, so if it's a pain point and I feel like I have a, a way to solve it, whether it's I'm uniquely smart and talented at it or just I'll work harder or I have some little thing that's going to make this work, that, then I'm willing to give it a shot. Absolutely. So, um, you know, morphing from... Your, you worked at a, a big accounting firm and then um, and you had some different businesses kind of going on the side, on and off. Then you worked at a smaller company um, where you were much more involved and more of an entrepreneurial role. You weren't the sure. founder, but sure. you were working alongside the founder. And then you launched Ceteris. And tell, tell us a little bit about the genesis of like, was there a moment where you said, I know I've got to go out on my own and this is the business I'm going to pour my life in? Or was it like some of these others? Okay, well, I'll start doing some accounting and bookkeeping services for people. And, oh, I guess I have enough demand to hire another person. Did it just, did it sort of happen on its own or was it a really deliberate effort to build this company? Yeah, no, that's another great question. And, and unfortunately, there's not the great simple yes or no answer. I would say it was more... I want to build something truly unique and I see this spot in the market and I'm going to do it. With that said, I had a family. I took a, you know, went from a, a good paying job to, to no income. Um, so I had to make some money. So there was also the practical standpoint of I'm going to do some, some work I can charge by the hour for. But what I did never sacrifice in all that was building a product that, that could reach the whole country. It could be national in scale, which hadn't been done in bookkeeping or in, in accounting. It was, it, I was serving local clients because that's who I was working with. It's a very, very fragmented, it's like your classic fragmented industry that you're not supposed to be able to easily scale in this way. And you wanted to, to tackle that. Absolutely. So every, every process I built, every system I built was to optimize building something that could be scalable as opposed to maximizing the margin and the dollars at the time. Um, so, so a little bit of both there, unfortunately. I didn't stumble into it. Um, when I decided I will offer accounting services, I always knew I'm not going to turn into an accounting firm. I don't just want to be a place that does tax returns and does audits. I, I want to do something different here. I want to build a business that can be unique, 
and truly serve a valuable need that I've noticed in the marketplace from my years as a CPA, from my years working with small businesses through high school and college, and then from my years working in small businesses again after after being a CPA, that the needs I saw needed to be addressed and I thought they could be in a unique um, kind of next generation manner. And that was what I wanted to build a company to do. Along the way, a little consulting work went in there, just, just paying the bills, but primarily focused on that bigger picture. Um, you, you've gone from, I mean, it was just you when you started and you have uh, what, 25 plus? Uh, 32 full-time equivalents now. So okay. okay. And, and it seems like every time I turn around, you're hiring. So that's a, that's a huge change. So, I mean, from somebody who knows how to, um, you know, perform this kind of specialized skill set for businesses to someone who's managing people and processes to do it, and you're not actually doing much of it yourself, what was the, what was the hardest thing in that transition, uh, and what do you wish you would have learned to do uh, sooner, or what, I guess what were the biggest pains in, in the in the growing? Sure. So so we more or less bootstrapped it the entire way. So when I look back, the things I would say that are absolutely invaluable is to have a great team, and and this is super cliche, but have a great team of really high level people. I can honestly look back and say I did my best to put every dime I possibly could into getting that as soon as possible. And I don't think I could have accelerated that any further, unfortunately. What I probably would have done was taken on is that just taken because... on money sooner and done it sooner. So that, that would be the one the one well, possible. Yeah, I was gonna outcome. ask, is that because good a good team is just so hard to find you can't speed that up? Or was it because you didn't have because you were bootstrapping it the capital to attract the kind of team? Members? Exactly. I we funded with revenue. So I hired lower level staff many, many of them, because I could afford them quicker to pick up the tasks, which was great. It let me delegate, and I've always been happy to delegate, but I couldn't delegate the higher level tasks, so I was very bogged down. Yeah. Um, again, we've always grown at cl- close to triple-digit numbers, so it wasn't like it's been slow. I do feel, though, if I could have gotten a team or maybe even a co-founder earlier, something to that effect where some of that higher-level burden could have been split earlier, I can't say I would do it for sure differently, but that would be something that certainly may have accelerated our, our trajectory. You know, uh, um, when I when I used to do fundraising and I met with a lot of really, really successful business people, I always love to just get their stories and ask them, you know, what are some things that you think make you successful? And the answer that I got, no matter what other answers came, every time there was some variation on um, get a great like right-hand man or woman. Sure. And like my success is attributable to this guy or woman who came on early on and like they really, they're really the ones who are doing everything every day. And I was just amazed at how often that was the answer. Sure. That you need somebody at that at that high level. And yeah, I would definitely second that. And and I'd heard those things at the time and, and I, I never really disagreed with them. Um, again, may, maybe the point would be to have raised some outside capital earlier and, and brought that person on earlier. However, the people I've ended up with are the best. And I'm honestly not sure if, if an accounting-minded person would come on to a place that was funded with outside capital versus <laughs> a revenue stream. Yeah. There's a very conservative mindset. You know, they don't want a, an 18-month yeah. job. Yeah, it's not, it's not the tech industry where people are used to that. Sure, and, you know. sure. So, well, that's a good, that's a good segue to, um, you know, both you and I in, in recent years have interacted a lot um, in business and, and even personal um, settings with people kind of in and around, you know, startup culture, Silicon Valley, um, in places and, and industries 
where there's a lot of raising of, of venture capital or angel investments and focus on sort of technology enabled uh, fast scaling and, and growth. Um, do you think that if you had had been exposed to that kind of mindset earlier, that would have given you an advantage and you would have gone out and raised capital and grown your business much faster? Or do you think going the organic bootstrap route um, to get where you've gotten with a lot of elbow grease and, and sort of sweat equity is made you better? And maybe it's not an either or, but do you ever do you ever wonder about that? I, I do all the time. Um, I'm absolutely convinced had I been in a culture and an environment like that, I would have gone and tried a bunch more things a whole lot quicker. Uh there's a chance that those would have succeeded astronomically. There's a chance that they would have failed miserably. And I would have, I don't think I would have given up. I'd probably be trying another one. But I think what, what the benefit, and I'm not, a, again, I don't make rules very often. I pretty much never. I'm kind of anti rules. But I would say that when you do go more of that bootstrap method, when you do go, let's grow fast, but we're probably not going to be a $500 million company in two years. Um, you learn from the market really hands-on, very, very day-to-day, minute-to-the-minute almost in terms of I need to change my service, I need to tweak something. Where when you're funded, maybe it rocket ships better, but if you miss those market signals because you're so insulated, you can also miss the whole point. I think we've come to a very, very good and strong business model based on the way we've done it. Um, in a perfect world, if we could have learned those lessons and been funded and accelerated it, then, then I think we would have been far better off. So I can't really say how it would have gone better or not. I, if it was there, I certainly would have probably gotten involved and taken it. I could pretty sure, safely say that. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I wonder about that a lot too, and I don't, I don't have an answer. But you know, the, the whole idea is, look, if you have a, a business model that works, um, you know, it will in some cases, if you have really, really heavy like upfront R&D that can't be monetized for four or five years but has a huge upside, like maybe you, you just need capital no matter what. But there are a lot of businesses where they could bootstrap it and – sell a small version of their product and keep growing it as they bring in bring in income. Um, but the idea is if you go out and get capital, um, you can jumpstart that. It can happen much faster. And because of the, you know, like compounding effect, you know, starting five years earlier will make you so much further ahead, et cetera. And everyone kind of knows that when you do that, you do miss some of the knowledge that you get from being more directly reliant upon the marketplace. But it's I guess people try to make up for it with like mentorship or, you know, advice or things like that. And, sure. and it's obviously worked. I mean, there's plenty of venture backed places that have done uh, phenomenally well, uh, certainly in software at least. Um, but it's, it's one of those things where, you know, in my whole education on learning in general, it goes into this. And I think some of it has to do with personality where there, there really isn't any substitute for learning what the marketplace values because if you don't you'll not have any money left to operate like immediately um and there's something really powerful about that i I think even if you do get get, you know if you are venture backed to the extent to which you can be have a really short-term horizon where you are like accountable on some kind of market feedback very quickly um it'll make you better. Or if your business model is not good, you'll find out quicker. Sure. Yeah. And I, I can say that w- without a doubt that what I thought would be the service and the market provided eight years ago has changed, not at its core, but at how it gets done very significantly many times. And those lessons were painful at a small scale. They would have been probably catastrophic at a large scale. Now I think we've got it to where y- 
that model's been figured out. And again, I'd probably go back to the fact that I'm a, you know, I maybe I'm just slow at picking things up. It takes me a few years to get there, but we've always ground, we've always gotten ahead. Those lessons, I think, had they been fueled, you know, with supplemental cash or, or anything else, maybe would have expl- been a lot bigger problems than, than ones we could just take as a lesson. I wouldn't even call it a pivot, but just adjustment in, in how we deliver a service or whatnot. If you call it a pivot, then you can, it's more buzzwordy and you get That's more, true. You it's know. true. But I wouldn't say we've a pivot, I think is honestly where you change what you do. We yeah. never change what we yeah. do. We just change how we do it, it several times. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, I or the, the scope of services provided or things yep, like the that. The niche markets we serve versus serving everyone. You know, we've learned a lot. So, um, I, I want to ask about, cause you started like me, you got, you got started with a, a family very, very young. And so you already had, um, at least one or two children when you started your first business. But when you started Satirist, you had what, three kids already or just two? Uh, yeah, actually I, I was jobless after my small business job of a business I was pursuing, you know, working at to eventually kind of buy out. Uh, that didn't work out as, as we planned. So I transitioned out and knew I wanted to start something. So I didn't go get another job, which again, this kind of maybe reflects on me a little bit as to who I am, but I thought that was a perfect time to get pregnant for a third child. <laughs> <laughs> Why not amp up? You know, it's, it's all about incentives. We're living on a credit card. We well, might as well. No, I mean, so this is a good question. A friend recently asked me, you know, do you think that, um, do you think that it's, having a family makes you a better or worse entrepreneur. And I really had to think about it a lot because I think in, in many ways, obviously it limits your availability, your schedule, your, the ability to go many sleepless nights while you're also trying to, you know, um, get up with a baby and all these other Mm -hmm. things that the pressure financially to, to provide for them, you know, you don't mind sleeping in your car, but you don't want your kids to, et cetera. So yeah, it limits some of what you're able to do, but there's a way in which it also sharpens you and forces you to um, spend your time as wisely as possible and, and like get the most, you know, sort of the 80-20 rule, like find your 20% sure, and sure. focus on it. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Do you do you think you have had an advantage in any way from having a family or is it just like, look, there's no way around it. This is much harder having a family. Uh, that's all there is to it. Sure. So- I would definitely say it's much harder having a family to to generate and, and to put the time into a startup business and, and make it super successful. With that said, had I not had a family throughout this process, I would have poured many, many, many more hours into it. And I already poured a ton of hours into it. It's not that I'm a nine to five guy whatsoever. Um, I would have poured so many more hours into it, but they may not have been focused on the right thing. I think now, if I had the time, it would be pretty well used and pretty well focused. Yeah. Um, but even then, I think what having a family or any other responsibility in your life forces you to do is be very focused and efficient in working on what really matters every day. So more time would have been like more money up front. I, I would have used it, no doubt. Would I have used it on the same things that got us to the same place? Mm. I'm not sure. Maybe those nights I had to leave, make a quick decision forced us into a better spot, you know? So it's hard to say, I'll say it's got pros and cons for sure. I like that. I like that comparison with, with money. Cause we were just talking about getting capital. It's, you know, the, the more you can learn about yourself and where you get the most returns, the more value you're going to put those resources to whether time or money. So there's, there's a, a logic to having kind of a gradual 
you know, easing into uh, getting more resources, both time and money, because, you know, I've said this before when I launched Praxis, if I would have had, you know, a couple million dollars to start Praxis with, I would have wasted like 80% of it sure. like right away. I mean, cause if you have it, you're going to use it. And the same goes for time. And there's, there's an advantage. You actually um, encouraged me in this again, starting Praxis. I was working full time elsewhere and you were like, don't see that as a burden. That's, that's great. Right. Take this, the time you do have um, when you're not working on that job and you'll have to be really focused with it and you'll figure out. And at some point you'll learn all these things that you would have spent, twice or three times as much time learning just because you had the time uh, if you, you know, if you were full time. So absolutely. There's something interesting there. So, I mean, how do you balance it with your family? I know you, let's just be honest. You're a much harder worker than I am. I mean, (laughs) I mean, your, your willingness to tolerate just like the long hours, the grind and even the kind of work you do, like you have a higher tolerance for hard, difficult work. I kind of like want to have fun a little bit more. I think. So, but I mean the, the hours you put in, you've got five, five boys, um, and obviously a very, uh, patient wife. <laughs> and, Absolutely. uh, how do you, how do you balance it? Your, you know, do you, do you believe in work-life balance or do you say, Oh, it's all just one thing. How do you deal with that? Sure. So on a personal level, it, it's all one thing to, to me personally. I don't have this. I need a certain part of my life to be non-work to balance out and to feel good about myself or, or whatever else. With that said, when you do have uh, a, a great family who, who loves you and wants your time, there has to be balance. You, you can't always be completely engaged, even if it's just mentally in work. So, so for the sake of, of family, in my case, the balance has to be there. Um, and it's been a long, I've had, my oldest son is almost 13, which, which just blows my mind. Um, but it's been a long 13 year journey since having kids to figure out some of these things. And again, I have by no means gotten there, but I've learned a lot of things along the way. You've got to block out family time. And for the longest time, that would still be, my mind would be elsewhere. I've had to learn, you have to turn that off. You have to turn off the business thing for a while. I've learned that sleep, maybe the eight hours of sleep that they say you need is not really necessary. And I've kind of become a, a living that, example of that's that. That's where I disagree with you. I need eight hours of sleep. You seem to operate on like four. I yeah, don't know. Four, four to five is what I is, is kind of the sweet spot with a little catch up on the weekend. But um, but anyway, I found that, you know, work time, you have to find time to focus on work as well. So fit that where it, where it can fit. More than anything, though, it's, and this probably goes for anything in, in my life and in all aspects of it, I've learned just set realistic expectations and under promise and over deliver as much as possible. And with the, it goes for the family just as much as business. Don't tell my wife I'll be home at 545. If it's going to be 550, tell her I'll be home at six. Just, just come through on what you say to both your business associates, but treat your family like your most important business associate. That was always key is, is they can't always get put on the back burner for a great proposal or a client issue that's on fire. They can sometimes if also they get put to the front burner sometimes. It's got to be fair and you've got to be upfront and so honest with it. So something you said, I want to ask you about how you how you do this because I'm actually pretty good at deciding, you know, sort of uh, putting boundaries around my time in terms of where I physically am. So if I say to my wife, I'll be home at a certain time and we'll go to the beach with the family, I, I always make good on that. Sure. But my problem is a lot of the time I'm not present mentally. And that's something I really haven't quite learned, like how to just 
as a discipline. I am sometimes, I am, but if there's certain things going on at work and I know about it, I'm just, my head is in there. Sure. How have you learned to combat that and be present in the moment? Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. Again, I wish I had totally gotten it, but I do have a few tips and, or tricks that I guess I use now that, that seem helpful. One is, you know, set the expectation with your family that like occasionally things are going to be kind of overwhelming. There's a financial crisis. There's a personnel thing going on. There's going to be a few days a year where you're just not going to be able to be there, even if you are physically. Those can't be all the time, and they could be every single day if you wanted to, and they, and they used to be, you know, but you have to learn what things are truly important enough to let that kind of be there. And then have that dialogue, but just make sure it doesn't get abused and get, and get done too often. So every now and then, there just probably are things at work that actually it's hard to squash down and get away from. But on the day-to-day, again, most days end with a whole bunch of craziness flying around in my head. And I've got to find a way to debrief. As you find this, everybody that I work with, it's like they all wait till six o'clock to like do everything. Yeah. And all the responses start And your email blows up. And yeah. It's it's like, it's not good for a family schedule. (laughs) No, not at all. So what I've found is, is find something that can kind of wind your mind down on the way home. So I drive to work, which working from home is great. I, I like working from an office for a lot of reasons, but probably one of the best is there's a physical time buffer between leaving my desk computer and and showing up at home for dinner so you unwind with my podcast right yeah so i flip on the (laughs) isaac morehouse podcast the tony robbins music fires up and and immediately all the mental energy starts starts switching into calm mode no whether that sometimes it's rap music sometimes it's sports radio i don't have a go-to i'm a i'm kind of a scattered guy so i don't really have like a set schedule but something it might even be a business-related podcast or something, but something other than the small concerns of the day. Try to put those on the shelf and then revisit them at another time, but don't let them overwhelm the thoughts. And I haven't got it perfect, but I'd say a lot better than it used to be. And in a large majority of the time, I can be pretty present and, and active and the way I want to be with my family when I do, when I am there. Would you say that you want to be great? Absolutely. What does being great mean to you? What does greatness mean? Oh man, greatness is a super, super challenging thing to. I know define. it's kind of one of those like you know it when you see it, like you know what you mean by saying it, but it, it is very hard. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those things when you see it, you kind of know it. I'm not sure you would you would know it if you get there or not. I, I certainly know that it's something I strive for, and I feel like is absolutely probably the main thing, kind of from a professional, non-family sense that I, that I'm pushing for is is what I would consider greatness. Do you think that everyone ought to push for greatness or do you not see it at all in like, it, like it's not a moral imperative that you be great. There's nothing wrong with um, wanting to, you know, just be good, for example. Sure. Or do you think it's something like everyone in their own way should strive for or, uh, you know, who, who can be great and should want to be great? Yeah, no, that's an absolutely great question. You know? Yeah. Great. Cause, cause great, great people ask great questions. <laughs> No, it, you know, and, and you probably have to probably better define great or greatness for me to get at this question. So I'll just leave, I'll leave it with, you know, greatness to me is a pretty high bar and anything kind of normal is not great. So anything relatively what the majority of people do so, wouldn't so be great. What you could almost define as like the the level of pain you're willing to endure to get to a goal maybe, or, or there's, I mean, that's not all of it, but there's something of that in it. Because For me it is. Cause I'm not all that talented at anything, but <laughs> <laughs> so the, yeah, the less your natural endowments, the more pain you have to, to make up for it. But, but I mean, I think there's something in 
you know, when you talk to certain people, there's like a spark that, that is not there. You can tell, and this is, again, I'm not saying this in a moralistic way or that it's bad. I mean, I'm in this camp probably half the time. Like I don't know some days if I really want to be great because there's a huge price to pay. And you can tell when you're talking with some people, and this is why giving advice about like, you know, achieving greatness is, is sort of, I don't know, dangerous or else maybe sure. useless. I'm not sure. sure that some people just, they don't want to put up with that pain and, and you don't want to make them feel guilty for that. Like that's a, uh, probably a fine trade-off or life choice, but I don't know. It's one of those things you almost like don't want to talk about it with people. You kind of just know it when you see someone who's going for it and you know it, you kind of have that like knowing look like, yeah, I, I like this person. Um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Can, sure, it, can, sure. can it be taught or inspired? Do you try to, you know, encourage people to, to go after greatness? I would say the thing, the thing that I feel I, I want to encourage everyone to go after is, is kind of what I think everyone is going after no matter what, but I want people to understand they're going after it. And it's what I can, I call quality time. The quality of their time existing is, is what they're going after. For me, if I'm, ordinary in almost anything, my quality is going to be, and I, and I'm certainly ordinary and below ordinary in a lot of things, but my quality is not as good as it would be as if I was great. So I'm striving to be great. So the quality of my time is what I want it to be. I don't feel that inherently every human feels that way. I feel a lot of humans can, can have great quality of time, just enjoying what we have around us and being a part of it or just observing it and not, not trying to strive to be different or better or more unique than everyone else. Um, so I would say if everyone finds what brings them the highest quality of their time in existence, that's what they should be going for. And not to get too, too, too wacky with all that, but I would say if you have that thing in you that says, I want to be great and that's going to make my quality of time better, then absolutely pursue greatness and sacrifice like crazy for it and take risks for it and, and go for it. But understand that, that, that for sure you want that. I think there's a lot of artificial pushing for people to be exceptional entrepreneurs or an exceptional artist or athlete. And if they don't really want that, the quality of their time trying to get there is going to be probably low. And it's probably not even going to be that high if they do get there. Yeah. And then this is where, you know, we've talked about a number of times on this show, um, you know, just living an examined life and, and then being honest about what you find. And I know for myself, I, I love uh, music. I love to you know play and sing and, and write songs and whatever. And if you ask me, you know, uh, even even a few I don't know five years ago, uh, do you love music enough to want to be great at it? Who's going to answer no to that? No one's going to be like, yeah, you know, because I really do. It's it's very moving sure. and powerful to me. But I had to be honest with myself and say, okay, if I really love music, why do I only sort of use give it short shrift as like this little play thing on the side that I occasionally dabble in and I always have that feeling like I wish I played more sure. but, but that's not true because I, I control my own time I could right absolutely and I think I had to be honest come to the conclusion like I actually don't want to be great at music and that almost hurts to say it even right now because I do love music but I don't want to be great I'm not willing to suffer the same kind of pain and difficulty that I'm willing to suffer for say uh, building praxis or pursuing my, my, you know, vision of, of education and things like that. So admitting that to yourself and then not feeling bad about it. Like I don't feel I'm learning to like not feel guilty for the fact that like some people are put going, like when someone quits their job to be a full-time musician, part of me always feels like guilty. Like I'm supposed to be doing that. Like, who are you? You're selling your love of music out, you know, but I don't want to be great at it. Yeah. That's a great point. And on the 
on the I keep saying that's a great point in our greatness yeah, discussion. It's, it's the, but in <laughs> anyway, I I wonder if something related to greatness is there's only if you want to truly be great, can you do it then more than one thing or certainly not many many things. And a lot of times, again, some super talented people m- maybe change this, but you kind of have to choose. Do I want to be great? And if I do, at what? I, for instance, you know, back in my early professional days, I would have placed a really high value on being great at fantasy football. Um, <laughs> I've kind of had to give that up to become an entrepreneur. And I'd say it was, it was worthy giving it up, but I, I'm with you in music. It's like, I know when the season starts and if I'm in a league, I'm going to be horrible. And I just know it because I'm not willing to put in what it takes to be great at it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, you've, you've given some, some advice here and some tips and things, but I know a couple of times when we've, we've talked, you're kind of reticent to share advice or dispense your wisdom onto, onto the world. And, you know, I do that kind of stuff all the time. Like whether I actually have anything to say or not, like I'm writing blog posts and doing <laughs> podcasts and I just, I always want to share everything that I'm thinking about. You have, I mean, anytime I ask you questions, you have so much stuff that you have clearly thought about and you have kind of like rules of thumb for yourself or heuristics, but you seem much more hesitant to share those with the world or like, you know, definitely pin yourself on these five rules will make you successful. Um, is that just a personality thing or uh, is, there a, is there a reason for that? Something that, that, that like just makes you happier or you find that it's, it's not very effective to do that? Sure. No, that's a, that is, it's a great question. And you mentioned you might bring something like this up and I, I've never really thought about it in a lot of detail, but I would say I have a, I'm a very ambitious entrepreneurial person who loves taking risks and sees the downside as so small and so minimal. And the safety net is so strong that I really go out on a limb and push and I also, as you referenced earlier, I work really hard. I work a lot. I'll do things to achieve things um, that I think are worth achieving, and I'll, I'll really put a lot into them. And early on in my, you know, in, in my kind of professional career, I just assumed pretty much everybody was that way. So I pushed every. I, I see in everyone the ability to. You've got something unique. Why would you want to work in a normal job? Why would you not want to start something of your own? Why would you not want to, you know, just achieve? And 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 I see why now is that sometimes it's a lot of work and it doesn't always work out. You didn't and, learn that not everyone was that way when when we were kids and you had to drag me up at like five thirty, <laughs> shovel the basketball court off and just practice for like hours. But, but you always got up. So I so I again I thought a little motivation, <laughs> a, a little pushing people and explaining to them and, and demonstrating and saying this is great. This is why was a good thing. And I've learned since then that, that you can push people into things, but not everyone's made to be like I am. Yeah. And a lot of those things that, that motivate me and that I look at and say, wow, we live in this great country. Opportunity is everywhere. The downside is so low to trying something and failing, but failing to me, there's something in my brain that that's not afraid of that. Yeah. Um, other people are, and, and I just can't associate as well. So I've, in small instances, nothing catastrophic, no major meltdown, fallout, horrible ruining of someone's like life. The first couple of girls you tried to hook me up with. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> didn't I did out. have the spot on your wife a yeah, long time you before did, you. You did but... call that one. Touche. Um, no, but so you, you've recognized that you have a higher risk tolerance than most people. And knowing that, you're kind of cautious about 
telling people, oh, you should do this, or you should, because if they're really unhappy with the result, like you don't sort of want that on your conscience. Yeah, not even on my conscience, but but I've seen them. People get excited. The things that I'm into, most people get excited about. Most people think, man, I want to have my own business, and, and that gets me excited. And I'll, I'll talk, what are you good at? Well, how could we do it? Like my mind immediately goes to how do we monetize your skills and provide value to the world? And that seems shallow and whatever to a lot of people too, but, but that just gets me excited. I, I like to think, man, you're a good craftsman or you're good at anything, but we could make this thing, figure out how to train people to do it. Let's put it on the web and let's go have a business making furniture or, or whatever the, the case may be. There's a million examples. Everybody I know that's into anything, I want them to start a business in it. And I can get people to, to, to go down that path. And even if it's, they wouldn't ever take the full swing, they'll spend a lot of time thinking about it. And that's maybe a distraction from other things that they, that they could be doing. Yeah. So I, I very much will offer advice if people ask. I love to talk about those things. But I used to just push it. Like that would be my conversation with people, yeah. even with you probably. It was, hey, Isaac, well, oh, you're doing fundraising. You're doing this. What are your skills? Let's, let's figure out what you can do. What yeah. can you do? Yeah. And that's, I naturally go there. So I've tried to just pull back on that. You know, it's kind of like uh, you'll find this with anyone who's been in a profession long, who's good at it. Like a financial advisor, a doctor, they'll tell you, They've got two sets of advice, what their clients should do and what they themselves would do because they don't want to project their own set of preferences and risk tolerance. Uh, I know you've, you've done this, you know, over the years as you've learned, you sort of transition when I ask you stuff, <laughs> you'll, you'll kind of ask me, are you asking what you should do or what I would do? Um, and I'm increasingly like, no, no, no. I want to, I'll, I want to hear what you would do because my risk tolerance has gone way, way up. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, something about once you start taking risks. That still does make me happy, by the way, yeah. as much as it shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I want to, I want to ask you just in terms of Ceteris, the company, what's your big, bold vision? What, what do you want set? What are you building with Ceteris? What do you want it to become? Sure. So ultimately I want Ceteris to be, to be two things to the marketplace and to the world. On, on the one side, I want small to medium sized businesses and entrepreneurs to be able to have accurate record keeping, reporting that they can actually make decisions on at their fingertips all the time in an easy to access and understand way without having to think about setting it up and cost to go into that. So that's, you know, getting super boring, super technical, but I ultimately want to take up what I look at as an unbelievably painful and archaic process to get financial reporting and accounting done and tax compliance and all those things. I want to make that revolutionize that and make it simple and actually relevant and valuable on the other side of the market. The way accounting and financial professionals have, have worked for hundreds of years is by the hour. It's, it's work at a rate that your firm bills high for, you get paid pretty well for, and the only way to maximize more is to work more hours. I want to build it in a way that the value they provide can truly be the compensation they receive, and they also have flexibility in where they work, when they work, on what they work, who they work with, et cetera, et cetera. I think the world is going there. I, Freelancing is a super generic term. Maybe it's through a firm still. Maybe it's not traditional freelancing, but freedom of the employee is coming. Professional services is an area that it's it's struggles to come in to some extent. In some ways, the technology side is pretty advanced and has been for a long time. But a lot of the way firms make money is currently a way that, that forces the employee to, 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 to mostly be valuable for the amount of hours they're willing to put in. I want to flip that on its head and provide value for the value provided to the client. Mm. And we're always pushing for that and, and we're making huge strides on it all the time. You're making it easier and easier for people to uh, be entrepreneurs, both uh, as 
as individuals who have expertise in accounting and, and to be able to sell their services, as well as those who run businesses uh, and don't have those skills or just don't want to put their time into bookkeeping um, to make it easier for them. To yeah, yeah. No, that's a, that's a great way to, to phrase it. If I could ultimately walk away, you know, I used to think I wanted employees knocking on one door, wanting to come to work for me and get interviewed. And on the other door of the business, on the other side, clients lining up, knocking on the door, wanting to get in. That sounds great, but what would ultimately, where that's evolved to over the last eight years is I want entrepreneurs on one side meeting entrepreneurs on the other side and we're simply in the middle connecting them. Hmm. Whether that's through an employment relationship or some other mechanism to connect them, that would ultimately be kind of the vision. And what we're we're there, it's just, it's continuing to improve and get better every day. So I, I gotta make clear that uh, Ceteris is, is not sponsoring this. This is not an advertisement. Uh, I don't benefit at all. In fact, even though I came up with the name, I don't own any shares in Ceteris. I've tried. You just you, you, won't, gotta, you won't let me in. I, I, <laughs> I don't bring it up to the table. Um, no, actually, it's the other way around. I actually am paying Ceteris. They're, they're, I'm a client of theirs. You guys do the do the books and uh, all that stuff. Well, Ceteris has floated a few loans to get some things off the ground. So. <laughs> well, and maybe paid so, for a fair so, share of lunches and beer. <laughs> yeah, so, some insider deals with the, with the lunches anyway. Um, Absolutely awesome having you on, uh, Levi. This is a lot of fun. You can check out www.ceterusinc.com, and Ceteris is spelled C-E-T-E-R-U-S, ceterusinc.com. Levi, thanks for coming. Absolutely. It's been great.